Hi, I'm Pete McCall, and welcome to episode 63 of All About Fitness. On today's episode of All About Fitness, I sit down with Bobby Capuccio, a personal trainer and fitness educator turned motivational speaker and transformational coach. A good coach is an important asset in many components of life, whether you're playing for a sport, training for a race, or going for that promotion at work. Bobby is one of these individuals who started out by coaching people in the gym to get into better health or get into better shape, and he's taken his, his passion for motivation and transformed it into being a powerful speaker and a terrific coach. And I know this firsthand. When I first got into education almost 15 years ago, Bobby was the first person who helped work with me to become a speaker, to learn how to train other trainers, to be an educator. So I have a long relationship going back with him. And over the years, while we haven't always worked closely together, I have valued my relationship with him because he always helps me think about new insights or new ways of looking things. And any conversation I had with him, he would always push me to be a little bit better, to try just a little bit harder. So I think you're going to get a lot out of today's conversation. Just a heads up, it's going to be a long one, but I know it's going to be valuable because Bobby shares with you some of his secrets for how you can have success in your life, whether it's personal success, professional success, or yes, even athletic success. So on episode 63 of All About Fitness, Bobby Capuccio. Vicor Fitness is the maker of the new TerraCore, which is a step, bench, balance trainer, and multifaceted exercise tool combined into one single platform. Go to vicorefitness.com to see the newest piece of equipment they'll be taking the fitness industry by storm in 2017. Use the code AAF to save 20% on purchasing a TerraCore of your own. TerraCore by Vicor Fitness. Vicor Fitness. Better results from better products. I'm Pete McCall. This is All About Fitness. Today I'm sitting down with Bobby Capuccio. Bobby, can you give us a little rundown of what it is that you do and, and your kind of area of expertise? Pete, I call myself a performance coach, and that seems a little bit ambiguous. And the reason why I call myself a performance coach is anytime someone sets out to do something related to health and fitness and wellness – there is an experience, there's a journey, but there's also a transformation at the end of that, a result. So a performance-based initiative. And any change must be preceded by a behavior change. So if we're going to take a look at behaviors and motives, why do people do the things they do or fail to do the things they say they want to do, what we're aiming our efforts towards is always performance. And that's and that's an important thing. That's and that's why you know, I wanted to speak with you as a guest on the podcast, is because you really have you're one of the people who transcended from starting as a personal trainer, correct? I mean, you started your career working as a personal trainer, right? Yeah, and and I was a personal trainer throughout my whole career because I speak to personal trainers. I'm a big fan that you can't really teach somebody to do something you're not actively doing. Because then it's speculation. You don't have a visceral connection to what your audience is going through. And that's, and that's important. I think that's one of the reasons why you've developed such a following um, as a fitness educator in our industry. And I think that's one piece, one, one thing that people don't realize is as a personal trainer, aren't you a performance coach? Isn't that what you do as a personal trainer? Well, I think as we start to move forward in the industry and it's being 
um, encompassed and transcended into the bigger, bigger mega trend actually of wellness, you're starting to hear trainers refer to themselves as coaches. And I think training is part of what we do as fitness professionals, but it's in no way, shape or form the totality. And you have to ask yourself the question, what's different between training and coaching? Because there are significant differences. When you're training somebody, it's a form of teaching and instructing. And let's unpack that a little bit. If I'm going to give you an instruction, there's knowledge of results, what I want to have happen, and knowledge of performance, what's actually happening. And through incremental micro-progressions, regressions, cueing, feedback, I start to bridge the gap between knowledge of results and knowledge of performance. And that's critical. But then we have teaching where I give you information, because think about it, if we have a client and that client trains three days a week, an hour a day, and they never miss a session, most trainers would look at that and say, wow, that's a good client, but that's less than 2% of the week. So if we're not focusing on the other 23 hours of the day, we can lose the whole plot, regardless of how well we execute the one hour a day so I need to be able to give you information that you're going to apply in my absence, and that's teaching. Now, when it comes to coaching, it's not so much instruction, information, and knowledge. It's not the things that we put in. It's the things that we have the capacity to draw out. I mean, if you take a look at the word education, the root of that word is educo or duciere, which means to draw out or in some translations to actually lead out. And there's a leadership component where I give you all of the resources to be at your most resourceful in making decisions that are in correspondence with your highest outcomes. That's coaching. So if we're looking for a result and we're not present 23 out of 24 hours a day, and we can only be responsible for effort but not outcome, we better be good coaches if we have any efficacy in what we're offering our clientele at all. And so what do you think, I mean, just kind of stay on this for a moment, because I think most people, when they work with, decide to work with a personal trainer, well, first of all, why would somebody work with a personal trainer? What, what's, what's the benefit that a personal trainer adds to the, to the health club experience? Or if I'm just a regular guy trying to figure out how to get back in shape after working for the last 10 years, and I want to get, you know, lose some of the weight I've put on, what's the benefit of hiring a personal trainer? Well, there are many benefits of hiring a personal trainer. One group of people falls into the technical category. I just simply do not know what to do. And the assumption is, if I know what to do, I'll do it. The second category is, you know what? I kind of do know what to do. I just can't seem to get myself to do it. And then you have other people who they, they spend so much time, and, and this is a lot of us, isn't it, Pete? looking through our filter that we don't spend enough time stepping back and looking at our filter. So there are certain insights when it comes to training and nuances and modifications that we're so close to our life and what we know and our experiences, we can't really make those connections, but somebody else could take a look at things that we're not capable of objectively quantifying and say, right, try this, do this. And one very raw, but I think decent example of this would be a movement assessment. No matter how much knowledge I have, no matter how much I know what to do, I can't step back and look at myself objectively. 
I can't step back and assess my movement and make micro modifications. So you have these three categories of people where some people need the nuance, other people, it's an inner game and they need basically the mindset to get themselves to do what they know they should do. And other people just need technical expertise. And I'd probably be remiss if I didn't say, you know what, for most people, they transcend all three of those categories, but index towards one more than another. No, I think that that's a great breakdown because when you look at that, I think everybody could benefit from some sort of that, that coach's eye. I mean, the example I always use is theoretically I could cut my own hair, correct? But you know, if I cut my own hair, <laughs> yeah. I don't know how well it's going to look. So what do I do? I go to a barber. I pay a barber who's an expert at cutting hair. It's going to take him 15 minutes to give me the haircut I want, him or her, as opposed to me trying to figure it out and look in the mirror and it's going to look, it's going to look like I cut my own hair. And, and so I, what I try to tell people is that trainers understand the body and understand movement. And I think you hit a key thing with movement assessment because I don't think people realize that when they move, they may not be moving efficiently, which may cause injury. It may be a reason why they get injured on a regular basis. Let's, let's just stay on that for a second. Cause I know your background, you have a lot of, uh, a lot of extensive knowledge um, with certain organizations work on the movement assessment. What's the benefit of doing a movement assessment for somebody that I might feel like I move well, but how can a trainer help somebody with a movement assessment? Well, I have a little bit of biases and I, I know we're all big walking bags of biases and the more experience you have with something, the more biased you become. But when you take a look at an assessment where A plus B equals C, well, I see this happening, and therefore this is the cause. One, there's a lot of dynamic complexity there. And number two, you might be dealing with a tra- – now, some trainers are incredibly competent, and it, it's kind of a mix. So you have a huge population of trainers that could probably benefit greatly, and their clients even more so, from a little bit more investment in continuing education. And then you have trainers who are doing what they're doing – not necessarily because I want to get here or go here in my career. It's there, but simply for the fact that I get to participate in something I enjoy. So the payoff is in the process. And these are the trainers who seem to have a full clientele and they show up for a lot of courses and their technical competency is impressive, in some cases inspiring. So you run the gamut. I I tend to look at appraisals more than assessments because with assessments you need I think in a lot of cases, you need more than credentialing. You need a license. Number two, you might be arriving at conclusions where there's a lot of other variables in play and a lot of other possibilities. And the conclusions you're arriving at, if not erroneous, might be premature. With an assessment, you're looking at pass or fail. I'm sorry, with appraisals. You're looking at what are the thresholds of movement. So, you know, I don't know if like a lot of people listening to this right now could relate, but let's say one postural distortion would be um, the knee goes into midline. So you're having a little bit excessive flexion and adduction at the hip. Whether or not that means anything to you, here's the point I want to make. One group of trainers will see that and say, okay, well, something here is tight and something else is weak and therefore, and you know what? A lot of those trainers will be right but a lot of other trainers will be wrong. And why? The short answer is, well, it depends on what? On a lot of physiological, biomechanical, um, neurological variables. So 
second group of trainer, you take a look at that and you say, well, what does that mean? If the knee is caving in towards midline, what do you know for sure? And those group of trainers would say, well, the one thing I know for sure is that knee is caving in towards midline. And if you brought them up in a court of law and you brought that person up and they did their appraisal, no one could argue with that. So if there's a breakdown, a specific point within the range, well, there are some guidelines that should go along with that because what you have appraised and quite safely and quite accurately is the body has a certain resilience or, or, or ability and you do not want to push the body beyond where it's demonstrating functional capacity to go. So now you can start to help the client within a range make choices that are safe and usually the safer choices are the most effective choices as well. I mean, if it was like, oh, you know what? This is this is not really a safe movement pattern, but oh, it's so effective. I'm just gonna go ahead and risk it. You usually don't run into that. Usually those two things go hand in hand. And a lot of times a trainer who understands movement collectively can help you make those decisions more effectively. And see, that's an important thing I think for people for people listening is an under, a, a good trainer, someone who, who's been doing this for a while, will understand they can see you move because people are to move. I'm going to move differently day to day. I might move differently on a Friday that I might move on a Monday for a variety of reasons. You know, and so a good trainer will see that and be able to adjust my exercise program for that for that day. Now, let's, let's take a step forward for a second now and into the world of coaching because I wanted to start the discussion a little bit about personal training since we both have been educating personal trainers you know, for quite some time. But when we look at coaching, now, if, I'm, if, I'm co- if I come to you for a coaching, how is your approach different as a coach than it would be as a trainer? You know, in a lot of ways, it's all. It's a matter of what are you focusing on in a given point of time. So if, if we're out on the floor and we're executing a strategy that I've laid out, well, you know, coaching could be the way I cue. Coaching could be how I structure the environment to allow a response to occur rather than driving a response. Um, but, but if I'm giving you certain cues, I might want to be more instructive than I want to coach. Again, my definition of coaching is what you draw out, not what you put in. So at sometimes during that session, instruction or teaching is not only going to be more effective, it's going to be far more appropriate. So coaching is simply a role that the trainer plays or training is a role that the coach plays, depending how you look at it. So when you're talking about coaching, you, gotta, you have to understand that it's not something that you're driving. Um, a, a guy that I think you know who he is, and he's a friend and colleague of mine, Dr. Roy Sugarman, probably one of the most talented neuroscientists in the world and very relevant to what we do because he works within the domain of fitness quite deeply. And he's very fond of a saying, you know, when you're coaching, you're not the sage on the stage. You're the guide by the side. So you're giving people tools and resources and insights to make better decisions. Now, what's a better decision? A better decision is one that's in alignment with what you value and with the outcome that you desire. A better decision is not where I have more information and knowledge and I, as the trainer, know better than you and therefore you'll align your decision-making process with my internal compass no, a better decision is a more aligned decision based on what you 
the client truly want. And I hold you in that space of unconditional positive regard. I don't make a judgment about that. So if I'm, you know, to kind of, to kind of highlight the difference, if, if I'm working with you and you're my trainer, you're basically telling me what to do and I'm going to implement it. I'm going to say, all right, I'm going to do 20 squats, 20 pushups, whatever. And you're not really, you're, you're going to do a, like an overview. You're going to do an evaluation. Then you give me a workout program to follow. Is that correct? I mean, just yeah. in a rough, kind of a rough sketch, mm-hmm. but then if I oh, hire you and, and I'm not using myself, you know, I'm kind of going to kind of use myself, but I'm not trying to get free coaching from you. I'm just trying to use myself as an example. But if I'm a 40 something guy and you know, I know what I should be doing. I make it to the gym. Okay. I make it to the gym three, four times a week. I try to make the right decisions. If I come to you and, and I want to hire you as a coach, the difference is you're going to try to, you're going to try to help me identify ways that I can make the changes myself so that that empowers me. Is that a better, is that a, the accurate way to say that? That's spot on. I don't even know why you need me on this podcast, <laughs> to be honest. But, but can, can, can I make a distinction? Absolutely. Yeah. A triad. Okay. So coaching is a developmental process. A lot of times when you come into a trainer, you might be looking to do something you've done before, but you need a little bit of help and a little bit of assistance. But very often, You seek out a trainer when you're attempting to do something you have never done before. And when you're attempting to do something you have never done before, you must become someone you have never been before. So that triad is training, development, and tools. And all three of those have to take place. They have to be present. And if you take one element out of that triad, you lose integrity in the sessions. And and what I mean by integrity is not necessarily anything with, with honesty or ethics, I'm talking about integrity the same way you would talk about structural integrity. So if you have a bicycle wheel and it has a lot of spokes, well, that has a lot of resilience. Now, if I just took one spoke out of that bicycle wheel, you probably wouldn't notice a difference, but at a very subtle way, in a very small yet significant aspect, that bicycle wheel will lose structural integrity and it wouldn't be able to deal with forces imposed upon it as effectively or in the same way. Now, if I start taking out multiple spokes, as soon as I increase the level of pressure on the wheel, the wheel's going to bend and it won't be functional any longer. So all three of these triads, they, they, they contribute to the integrity of the session. And one is training. Training, if we could simplify it again another way, it's what to do. It's the doing aspect of the session. Development isn't really the doing aspect as much as it's the being aspect. Who do I need to be in order to do what I need to do effectively? And then we have tools. That's what do I have? You know, the nomenclature of all the things in the gym, you know, what's the difference between a suspension training tool or, or why would I use a dumbbell versus a kettlebell? What's different? Well, that's how I navigate through tools and put all of that together. You need all three domains. Now, could you imagine a training session where you're focusing on the doing, I'm sorry, where you're focusing on the being, but you don't at some point tell somebody exactly what to do? Well, they might be inspired. They might be better equipped. They might be more evolved, but they're not going to get to their goal. You need all three of those. Does that, does that make sense? No, that, that makes total sense. And, that, and I think that's where we're, we, we are really starting to see kind of an evolution in the fitness industry where we are starting to see the more, especially those of us that have been doing it for 15, going on 20 years, you know, we are becoming better at that. I think what we've been doing is kind of inherently 
coaching our clients to try to want to take more ownership. And, and that take, that involves, you know, something called, and this is an area where I know you, you've dabbled in a little bit that, that involves an area of helping change somebody's mindset. Because I've always viewed that Bobby, when somebody get, comes into the fitness world is I can't make you want to be here. If you don't want to be in a health club, if you don't want to exercise, I cannot make you want to exercise. As a, as a trainer, as a coach, that's not my job. I can't make you want to do something. But if you show up, all I need you to do is show up and be willing. Then I can, can start implementing, can start helping you down the path to making significant changes. And, and the thing that, that, that I've been doing a little bit of learning about is mindset and the role that mindset plays. And what do you, how do you describe mindset? What, what exactly do I mean by mindset or what's that term referred to? I'm so glad you asked me that question because there's a lot of terms coming up in, in fitness and wellness right now. And it, it demonstrates a growing interest. I think right now we're having an awakening um, as fitness is starting to collapse and wellness is starting to be born where people are really interested. But you have terms like hacking, biohacking, mindset, and people are arguing around terms that they're not stopping to define. So what is mindset? I think mindset is a cyclical collection of drivers of a result or drivers that produce a result. So you have one beliefs. What is what is this person belief? And you know some beliefs, you know, are chosen and they're explicit. You know, I believe this. Other beliefs are implicit. We've just we've had a thought so many times, we just accept it as reality. But we didn't necessarily generate that thought, and we're living out scripts that we didn't have a hand in writing. That's a whole different podcast. <laughs> but our beliefs generate a stream of consciousness. So how we think and how we think determines how we view a specific situation. You can have like five different people in the same party, but how they feel about parties and a lot of things that are innate to that individual determines the fourth component, which is how they feel about being there. I mean, we've all been at a party where, you know, one person's like bouncing off the walls, they're annoying everybody else, but they're having a really great time. Other people are chill. They've kind of like gravitated to their own group. And then you have somebody sitting alone on the couch. Nobody likes me. Nobody talks to me. I hate this place. Parties suck. And who's right? They're all right. They all have a very different perspective. And that perspective creates a different emotional state. And emotions, probably more than anything else, are the most provocative towards behaviors. How we feel in any given moment profoundly affects what we do. I had a very interesting um, podcast of my own with a guy by the name of, you might want to consider interviewing him, Joseph Lejeune. Um, And he's a professor at NYU. He is probably... Um, one of the most widely quoted neuroscientists still alive today, and his subject matter is fear. And how does fear affect behavior? Wow, that's relevant for our industry, isn't it? (laughs) And what he said is how the brain evolved is the limbic system or the amygdala takes precedent over and, and receives impulses messaging from the thalamus prior to the prefrontal lobes. So in other words, our feelings are more provocative than thought over behavior because from an evolutionary perspective, speed is far more important than accuracy. 
So now, if you hear Russell, anyway. No, no, well, <laughs> so, no, no, because because that's because I think one of the reasons why I, I want to go down mindset, and this is so important, dude, because I think there's so many people out there, and you and I have probably seen this over the years. But I can't tell you how many people, you know, I've been teaching group fitness classes for almost 20 years. I can't tell you how many people I see where they come, they're there regularly for like six, seven, maybe 12 weeks in a row. And then all of a sudden they're gone for two or three months. And when they come back and it's like, well, what happened? And it's, you hear the same answers all the time. Well, I just got busy or I just, you know, I wasn't, you know, feeling like I was getting any results. And, and they, they tell themselves this story and that's what it is. They're telling themselves a story of what's happening. What do you think that do you think that's that's in your experience? Have you have you seen a lot of people go through that where they kind of go through this roller coaster or go through this revolving door of, yes, they do fitness for a little while or yes, they exercise regularly and then they won't do it for a while. I mean, have you seen that? And is that really does mindset play a role in that? Well, if you take a look at mindset being beliefs, thoughts, perceptions, emotions and the ensuing behaviors that result from all those variables and how we behave produce a consequence and the sum total of our consequence determines our performance. Well, then mindset affects everything we do. It can't not affect everything we do. And yes, of course we see that. We see that in every domain in life, don't we? And I think you pointed something out that's really astute. And I don't know if you know what you said, but you said people tell themselves a story. So we go into our storyline, which usually is automatic. You know, we've reinforced these neural pathways so many times that the, the second something happens, it produces our automated storyline. And that storyline perpetuates that behavior. And what that story means is basically nothing. It doesn't mean anything. Most of the things we tell ourselves in reality didn't actually happen. It's our story and interpretation about what actually happened so we can explain away that behavior. So, you know, helping people deal with their stories is really important. But yes, I do see that. And what's all the time. And, and what's a way that, you know, if 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 somebody is stuck in that trap of kind of the yo-yo exercising, they start, they stop, they start and they 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 haven't sincere they they, they want to cuz we've seen that people want to exercise. But they tell them, you know, whether they tell themselves the story of I'm not a fitness person or I'm not in great shape. Number one, I don't think anybody at the level that Bobby and I are at and the other guests I've had on here, none of us really care what you look like. That should be the last thing that concerns you, but we're all interested in making you healthier. So that's the first thing that I think that people have to change in their mindset. And how does somebody go about changing that mindset? And I guess what I was trying to say is I think a lot of people will tell themselves a story if I don't look like a fitness model. I don't look like I'm a, a fitness person. Therefore, I shouldn't do fitness. When in reality, what's most important is, are you healthy? Are you being active on a regular basis? Because the physical activity leads to positive health. So how can we change somebody's mindset to get away from this preconceived notion of appearance and towards the fact that exercise should be re really about promoting health and, and improving quality of life? Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look at this a couple of ways. So just bear with me for a moment because you got to look at it, remember, there's the doing aspect of coaching and there's the, the being aspect. It doesn't just apply to the client. It applies to the trainer. So a lot of the responses we get are based on the space we hold and what we put into that space. So there are things we can do and tools that we have, right? The other part of the triad that we can use, but then there's a being sense. First, let's, let, let's take a look at what to do. I, I think when somebody goes into their storyline, if you, if you want to take a, you know that, have you ever heard that story from, um, in a seminar 
where the teacher, she took out a big jar and put the big rocks. I'm sure you've heard of it, right? I've, yeah, I've heard a few similar ones like that. Yeah. Yeah. God, I used to, I used to uh, consult for a company in the UK and there was an executive, his name was Nick and I, I love this guy. But um, one of my partners, one, one of the people I was working closely with, she hated hearing this story because every single meeting, Nick would talk about this. She's like, oh, my God, here he goes with this big rock story. And basically, for anyone who hasn't heard it, I'll make it really quick. So one day a teacher walks into school and she bends. I don't know what class she was teaching, but bends down and takes an empty jar and puts it on the table. And she asks the class, OK, what's in the jar? And they're like, nothing. OK. So she goes underneath her uh, table and she takes out these really big rocks and she starts stacking them in the jar until she can stack no more. And then she looks at the class and says, well, is the jar full? And everyone agrees. Absolutely. The jar is full. So then she goes ahead and bends down underneath her, her desk again and takes out a bag of gravel probably the weirdest class you've ever been in. She dumps the gravel in and it goes in between all the spaces and the rock. And now there's absolutely no space. And she asked the class, well, take a look. Is the jar now full? And like, ah, we know it. Yep. Now it's full. And she says, is it? And then, you know, sand pours it in between the pebbles and she asked the class now, is the jar full? They don't know what to say. I don't know. We don't know if it's full. Could be, could not be. And then she bends down once more and takes a gallon of water and pours it in between the sand. And she said, okay, now what's the lesson? And the lesson, you know, basically is, you know, put your big rocks in first. What are your big rocks? So when you take a look at mindset and you take a look at what are the big rocks, where you got, you've got beliefs, you've got thoughts, you've got perceptions, you've got emotions, you've got behaviors. You're on the floor with somebody. They're going into a story. Anything you affect within that cycle is going to affect everything else. But what is most within your control within the unit of time and environment you're working within? And the answer is behaviors. You know, Warren Buffett said that the chains of habit are too light to be felt until they're too heavy to be broken. So sometimes, you know, I, I, I saw a quote on Facebook the other day. Somebody wrote something, you know, arguing on the thread, you know, really common. And they said, you know, before you change your behavior, you need to change your attitude. Not really. You're going to be waiting a very, very long time for people to change their attitude or for you to change your attitude because there's a lot of factors that led to you having the attitude you have. And there's a lot of synaptic um, and biochemical factors that are contributing to the perpetuation of that attitude. If you want to change your attitude, change your behaviors. So if you're dealing with a client, what is the one thing? So yes, I'm not an exerciser and I'll never... Yes, Pete, I get that. I understand that. But if you were an exerciser and it was within your power, what would be one thing that you would do? Not 10 things today. What about one behavior you would engage in? Get that behavior. And I now, think, well, let me just pause there real quick for a second because I think that's so important, Bobby, to stay focused on that one thing because I think the one of the reasons why people can find it easy to kind of to stop exercise and correct me if I'm wrong is they see it as oh I got to do this this and this I got to do CrossFit and I got to do yoga and I have to spend 20 minutes rolling around on a piece of foam then I got to do this and that so it kind of overwhelms them and so therefore they don't do anything mm -hmm. rather than yep. doing one all thing. or nothing how important is that one thing how important is that one little thing 
Well, it's critical. You know, I was I was having a conversation on a conference call with uh, Kelly Starrett. And for those of you who don't know Kelly Starrett, he wrote the book Becoming a Supple Leopard. He has a huge following. He's a really intelligent guy. Because one of the things that makes Kelly so sticky, I don't mean like physically sticky, I mean his information so sticky is the way he understands behavior and coaching and how he's reasonable in approaching transformation. And he was talking about, look, if you get one meal down, you know, the propensity for people is to go, oh, but the other two, I screwed it up. Yeah, but guess what? A few weeks ago, you were screwing up every day. You didn't, you didn't have it together in any meal. So you get lunch down. Guess what? That's a win. So if you can get someone to perpetuate a certain behavior over time, you know, Dr. Aaron Fessinger decades ago started to notice in his patients that they had this internal drive for consistency. And as human beings, we suffer emotional duress whenever we try to hold two opposing perspectives in mind and still retain the ability to function. This is called cognitive dissonance. So if you can get somebody to engage in one behavior, they start attaching meaning to that. And that meaning could be, well, you know what? I guess I'm not as hopeless as I thought. You know, I, I guess I can do this. And as a coach, our job is to ask questions that direct someone's focus to an area where they might have not gone innately before. So if I could just get you to do one thing, even a seemingly inconsequential thing. And two weeks later, I say, well, talk to me about that, Pete. Over the past two weeks, you said when I first met you that you weren't able to do this because dot, 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 whatever their story is. But yet for the past two weeks, you've successfully implemented a behavior critical to your outcome. Could you explain that? Explain away that success. And they can't. Or, you know, what does that say about you? So what would you say about someone, maybe not you, Pete, but someone else that is able to set a behavior and stick with that behavior over a course of time? What strengths would they possess? Great. How do we utilize those strengths to just make one more micro commitment? And, you know, every time you make a micro commitment, your sense of self-efficacy increases more and more and more. Well, what's self-efficacy? It's simply my inward belief and my ability to initiate and perpetuate a series of activities in line with a desired outcome. So the greater my self-efficacy, the greater my chances of successfully arriving at a destination that I set for myself, lower the self-efficacy, the harder that journey is going to become if it's at all possible. So coaches create micro decisions that support self-efficacy. So start with one thing, let them evaluate what that success has meant, and then move on to another thing and another thing. And then self-efficacy will start to take care of it because every quote-unquote exercise enthusiast or maybe an exercise fanatic, you know those people, their whole life revolves around training. They didn't start out that way. They started out doing one simple thing effectively and moved on to another thing and another thing. Now, maybe for some people it took six months, a year, other people, six weeks, they fell in love with something, but we all start the same exact way. Transformation is the result of the initiation of one simple commitment followed through on and then expanded. And that's such an important, that, that's a powerful, powerful concept. And how important is it to take a step back and reward yourself. I mean, because developing self-efficacy is the holy grail of what we do, right? I mean, what we're trying to do is really empower people to be consistent in behaviors, to, whether that's going to a cycling class or whether that's walking to work instead of driving, you know, a mile and a half. 
Um, you know, that that's indicative here in San Diego, by the way, you know, people will drive, you know, sit in a car for 20 minutes where I'm like, you know, it could take you 15 minutes to walk there. Um, and you see, I live those... in LA, they drive up the street to the shops. <laughs> so but that's just indicative of, of that. But how important is that reward, you know, to develop self-efficacy and, and what type of, how should somebody reward themselves? So if I've started that behavior of eating a healthier lunch and I've managed to eat a, a healthy lunch every day for a month. I'm not worried about breakfast yet. I'm not worried about dinner. But every day I've nailed my lunch. How important is that reward? And what type of reward would help me kind of stay on that path? You know, there's a lot of conversation about reward. Um, And I, I, I think they're important. But we have to take a look at the definition, again, of reward. Are we talking about extrinsic rewards? Like, okay, if I go ahead and I stick to my lunch, commitment every day for seven days. Well, then Sunday night, I'm going to allow myself to have some ice cream and that feels good. And that can be really effective for a short period of time. Because if you take a look at DC and Ryan decades ago, pioneered their self-determination theory and they scaled motivation through four levels. And the first level of motivation is a motivation. Um, This is where you're not really motivated to do something either because you exist in one or two mindsets. One mindset is I can't. I know there's a problem, but I do not have any faith in my ability to resolve it. So I'll deny it. I'll hide from it because I'm suffering pain now, but the pain is less than the compounded pain I feel from continual attempts and failures that I then have to internalize. So they exist in that mindset. Then you have other people where it's not a matter of I can't, I won't. I simply don't see the problem. You have a problem with my weight. You have a problem with my behaviors. But guess what? I don't. And when someone's in a motivation, like you pointed out, the only thing we can do is hold non-judgment, unconditional, positive regard. When you're ready, if you're ready, how can I serve? But until then, there's no, there's no influencing that person. You can't influence somebody to do something they don't want to do. But the next level of motivation is external motivation other. And what that means is I go to the doctor and my biological markers indicate that I'm at high risk of some type of metabolic disease. I'm 54 years old and mom died at 55, dad died at 53, and like God's like right there in front of my face and I'm in a little bit of a panic. So I go home and you know, I tell my family, I'm going to make some changes around here because you know I want to see my kids get married, whatever. And I go and I start exercising in a state of panic because I'm trying to save my life. As soon as your level of terror subsides, and it has to, <laughs> guess what happens? The motivation that was attached to the terror subsides. So exercise ceases. Now, the next level of motivation is external self, where let's just say, Before my terror starts to subside, I'm someone who hangs on to a little bit of terror for a long period of time. It happens to be a talent I possess, (laughs) but I start to notice I feel a little bit better. The alarm clock goes off, and I don't have to hit the snooze button three times. I hit it two times. Wow, that's that's progress. And then I go into the office, and people are like, are you doing something different? Did you buy a new suit? Something just looks and kind of feels – I'm like, hey – I might be able to, you know, look better and maybe even live better as a result, but I'm exercising still for an X. See, so it's for myself. I'm making this decision. It's not my doctor told me or my spouse 
keeps nagging me. It's I've decided, but yet the out the outcome is what's driving the behavior. I do this to get that. But the type of motivation where it all flips, where breakthroughs are made, every breakthrough requires a break with the attachment to the outcome. So I exercise because the payoff is in the process, because I don't feel good as a result of exercise. I feel good due to the participation in exercise. I can't wait to get to class. I can't wait to get to the gym. I'm like a kid engaging in play, not because I'll get rewarded, but because I enjoy play for its own sake. And, and intrinsic motivation is based on three variables. It's an arc of motivation. An arc of motivation is an acronym and it stands for autonomy, competence, uh, relatedness, I'm sorry, and competence. So in other words, I'm making my own decisions. Somebody's not telling me what to do. I'm directing the pace and the course of my actions. Relatedness is twofold. If I'm working with someone, they, ha they have to be invested in me. If I don't feel like there's a sense of empathy and relatedness that fosters a relationship, I'm not gonna let you influence me. And what I'm doing has to be related to who I want to be and what I identify with. What are my values? And when values and behaviors align, very often willpower, discipline, persistence, passion, all of the attributes that we associate to quote unquote success occur automatically. And think about you know the laziest person in the world who you can't get them to leave their house and they meet the man or woman of their dreams, and you have a highly enthusiastic, highly motivated, and very active. This person's like, oh my God, I love skydiving. Now this person, th th this person won't even like get off the couch because like their favorite series just started. It's House of Cards on Netflix. Are you kidding me? Next thing like, skydiving? I'm an avid skydiver. Never done it before, but I love it. So what are you into? I don't know, what are you into? So this person goes mental because a value is being supported by those behaviors. So I think when somebody struggles, it's not lack of discipline or character or willpower and all that stuff we dump on our clients. That, that, that's the whole being part. It's lack of alignment between what they value and what they're doing. And of course, the last part of it is when you're engaging in something that motivates you intrinsically, it's challenging. You know, nobody wants to do something that they, that far falls within the range of mastery because that's boring. Now, it can't fall outside of your capacity because that's frustrating, but if it's just at the outer edge and it challenges you, you tend to get enjoyment from it. And one of the reasons is because you have to now single-mindedly focus your attention, which is one of the elements of flow, which is critical not only for peak performance, but flow states are highly enjoyable, even euphoric in nature. So once you get to the point of autonomy, relatedness, and competence, unless something dramatic happens in your life, you're pretty much going to stay the course because your motivation comes from within. So I think the rewards you should get a lot of times for the long run is acknowledgement, is stepping back and being mindful of how that feels, what that says about you, and how you appraise your own consistency.
and, those type of rewards are pretty enduring. And so that, and, and to sum it all, well, not to sum it all up, but to, to bring it back to that point of coaching, working with a coach can help somebody, can working with, with a coach help somebody kind of identify what's important to them, say, learn how to align their behaviors with their values. Is that, is that one of the things, one of the functions that a coach um, provides or that a coach plays? I think that's probably one of the most powerful things that a coach could do. Of course, I'm a fan of coaching. I'm a big believer. Everybody needs a coach. I just actually hired a coach in San Diego um, two days ago, just uh, bought a few sessions um, with this individual. So, you know, even coaches, especially coaches should have coaches. But yes, that's probably one of the most powerful elements of coaching. Just what you said there, Pete. It's just because it's somebody to look at you and say, hey, here's where you are. Here's where you tell me you want to be. What's getting in your way? Let's talk for a second. I want to talk for a second about barriers. I'm going to come back to flow and then start wrapping it up. So how important is it? I mean, one of the things I think that happens to people is they put barriers in front of what they're trying to achieve. Well, I want to go to the gym, but it's, you know, it's a far drive. Or I want to go to the gym, but I don't feel comfortable walking into that environment. How important is it for a coach to help somebody identify barriers and work to remove those barriers? You know, they're going to come up. Um, so you better have a methodology of crisis anticipation beforehand. And, you know, a, a lot of people say, well, you know, I don't want to be negative. You know, it's not about being positive or negative. It's about being effective. Um, and, and a lot of times it's not who we think we are. It's who we think we're not. <laughs> and it's the barriers that get in the way, not lack of something, but too much of something that reduces our forward momentum. And there's a couple of ways to deal with that. And, and one is to reduce the size of the commitment down to the ridiculous, to get adherence and build from there. That's one strategy. The second is to question. You know, coaches don't provide better answers. They ask more poignant questions, allowing people to be the own purveyor, their own purveyors of solutions. So in other words, you know, if somebody says, well, it's too far, to, well, if it wasn't too far, what would you do? And why would you do that? Or I can't do this because, you know, Byron Katie in the work has a series of four questions she always asks that allow people to stay in the muck of their conversation and untangle their own inward thought processes and, and emotions that stop them from having what they truly want. And the four questions are, one, is that true? Well, it's too far, so therefore, I, well, is that true? And the next question after they answer that, and what they answer doesn't matter. It's the, the thought process that you're building is, is that absolutely true? So what you're doing is, well, okay, okay. Now give me evidence to support what you just said. Where's the evidence for that? The next question is, what happens when you think that thought? And it's not just talking about, you know, what happens, you know, around you, what you do, but what happens inside of you? You know, how does that feel? What's the next thought that that perpetuates? And the final one is, who would you be without that thought? Now, I think that's brilliant because notice Byron Katie doesn't say, well, what would you be or what would happen without that thought? Who would you be without that thought? Because if, if you take a look at, let, let's go to Maslow's hierarchy of human needs for a second. Now, Maslow's hierarchy is far from perfect and it's fallen under a lot of criticism and, and rightfully so, but it gives us a, a a great simplified working model to say our basic human need, once our physiological needs are met, is safety. 
and you know the anterior cingulate cortex in the brain kind of process, processes you know physical safety and emotional safety in the same way. So it, it, a lot of our safety comes from our identity. What do we feel the greatest amount of affiliation for, and who do we have the greatest affiliation with? Tribe. And that formulates the, the foundations of our identity. So who would you be without that thought? Because a lot of times our thoughts are rooted into the type of person we think we are. You know, it's our identity. So who would you be without that thought? And if once you arrive at the answer to that question, a lot of times people will let go of a lot of the quote unquote stories that they hold on to. There's, a, there's always a benefit from, from that story. Another, uh, another methodology that you can utilize, and this one comes from Keegan and Leahy, is basically identify your, your verbal commitments. What are the things that you explicitly say you're committed to? Because we all have that. I'm going to you know, lose weight. Um, I'm going to, you know, whether it's lose five pounds, I'm going to increase my income. We have all these things. We know what they are. But in the second column, there are always, there are always for all of us, to some degree or another, things that we do or fail to do that stops us from keeping our explicit commitments. Now, a lot of times people tell themselves stories or we tell our clients stories or we don't even share the stories we have about them, but it interferes with the space between us. And that's, oh, this person's lazy. Oh, you just don't want it badly, badly enough. And I don't know if that's true or false, but maybe a better question to ask Pete is, is that useful or not useful? And very often it's not useful. So in the third column, a third category, we have hidden commitments. So mm, when I keep this commitment to lose weight, I violate a hidden commitment. And that hidden commitment is usually there to support a value. So by me having what I say I want, I actually threaten a value in another area. And I think that conflict is what creates struggle, what creates complexity and what creates failure to achieve our goals very often. And I'll use my partner as an example. You know, she grew up in Nigeria and, you know, Nigerians are very hospitable. Like you run into a Nigerian and they will feed you. <laughs> and a lot of cultures are like this. It's kind of like a Greek or an Italian. It's like sit down, have something to eat. And even if you didn't have food, you would always give your guests food. So the offer of food was an offer of hospitality and it, in a lot of cases, it's an offering of love. So if I'm on a diet and you offer me food and it's not on my diet plan and I refuse that food, I'm refusing love. Now, what if I value love above all other things and I'm creating that in my house? Because a lot of times I'll tell my girlfriend something like, you know, I'm, I'm kind of staying away from sugar, refined sugar and processed food and she'll bring me home popcorn. It's like, <laughs> that's the exact thing I said I don't want to eat. Now, why is she bringing home popcorn? Because she's trying to sabotage my attempts to live a healthier, happier life? No, of course not, because she knows I love it. And what she's basically saying is I love you, and I know that food means love. So I'm violating a visible commitment when later on that night I'm eating that popcorn to uphold a hidden commitment that's attached to a value. And then there's always an assumption that drives this whole process. And that assumption could be, you know, if I don't engage in things that my partner wants me to engage in, you know, I will hurt her. When 
Is that true? I don't know. So a lot of times if you work backwards and say, okay, well, what's, what would the assumption need to be that would allow me to uphold my explicit commitment and not violate any other commitments that I have? And how can I work through that with my partner? A lot of times you can resolve those conflicts that stop you from being the best version of yourself. And, and I'm going to come back in because that these, these are such important concepts and they're so, so deep. And I want to come back to something that I think that they can help people in such a way that they may not even realize it. Because I think a lot of people, especially in this day and age, we can both agree that we've all become kind of isolated in our own little worlds thanks to our screens, whether it's a phone, a pad, a TV. <laughs> yes. But we kind of become isolated in our world. How powerful, because you mentioned self-efficacy earlier, and one of the things that can help drive self-efficacy is vicarious experiences, meaning if I see you and I relate to you and I see you doing something, it becomes easier for me to do something. How powerful is the group experience when it comes to making a change or come to changing a behavior like staying with a regular exercise program? How powerful is the group and and why is that so important? Because you also mentioned tribe. So both those, they all kind of tie in together. And I want to kind of hear how you, how you approach that. Well, Albert Bandura, who probably is one of the, the greatest, um, psychologists like in, in the 20th century, again, one of the most widely quoted, um, individuals you'll read in, in varying texts, he utilized vicarious experience very successfully. He, he shaped that as a means of counseling with his patients and you know, now coaching uh, with our clients. So that is such a powerful tool. You're bringing up some really cool stuff here. But I think you know, social evidence and mentoring are incredibly powerful tools that you can utilize. Getting around a tribe that you, aff- you have an affiliation with and for, you enjoy being around them – just going ahead and immersing yourself in a group exercise class. Think about CrossFit. Why is CrossFit so powerful? And a lot of people, depending on their biases or their experiences, they'll have a lot of different answers. But I think one thing that you can observe is CrossFit creates a community and that culture drives performance. Now, again, you know, we talk about culture. What is culture? Culture is beliefs that are held by a certain group. And from those beliefs emerge rules. And from those rules, certain behaviors ensue. So I I think social evidence is extremely powerful, which is why multiple forms of group exercise, whether it's a soul cycle or whether it's a boot camp or a Spartan race, a Tough Mudder or a CrossFit are becoming so popular because the community creates a social evidence that drives the behaviors. Um, and the fact that, you know, in a lot of cases they're fun, you know, I don't have to do this. I get to do this, which is a great mental shift. But another thing you talked about with, you know, vicarious behavior is take a look at a mentor. Now this could be somebody, you know, or this could be someone you know of, And, you know, ask yourself, okay, I know that I've got a couple of hangups. I know that I don't consider myself an exerciser. What would this person do in my situation? You know, what's one thing that this individual probably does every single day or most days? And the flip side of that is, you know, what's something that this individual would rarely do or in some cases never do? given who they are, what if I would model those types of behaviors? 
what would happen? And not forever, because forever is a very long time. It's very scary. Forever conjures up a lot of our stories. But what about seven days? What if I tried this for seven days or 10 days? Or, or I think the limit on this is 30 days. People feel like they can do properly motivated anything for 30 days. You know, what would happen? What do I expect to have happen? And then just engage in that. And that's a way that you, you might not even come face to face with your mentor, but you can utilize things like vicarious experience to help shape some of your behaviors that, you know, might not be innate to you or you might not be familiar with. And, and that is, and see, I think that's, that's a powerful thing that people don't realize about the benefit of group exercise. And that's one thing I've seen as, as someone who's, who's taught it for years is you, you facilitate this community, you facilitate this environment where you have different people coming together who might not normally cross pollinate, who might not normally cross mm-hmm. paths, and yet they're coming together at the same time, whether it's every day or every week for the same person purpose, which is to get better. So I think for people listening, if, if this kind of resonates with you and you're having problems and you start exercise and then you stop, you start and you stop, if you haven't tried group fitness or if you are looking for that thing to push you over the edge, I think, you know, group fitness, and Bobby, would you agree, would group, group fitness be something, you know, worth considering or group training, working in a group environment? Do you think that could really help somebody, especially for people that may not be able to afford working with a coach? Do you think that working in a group environment can help move somebody in that direction and get some of the benefits of what we've talked about today? You know, I think group exercise is one of the most powerful tools most people. It's not for everybody but it's one of the most powerful tools that the majority of people that have not succeeded otherwise have at their disposal. I I mean, there's a couple of ways to drive behavior and a lot of theories. And one is to examine the intrinsic motives and the intrinsic constraints that stop you from moving in a direction that's aligned with what you want. And the other thing is changing your environment not to force these behaviors, but to allow these behaviors to occur. If you take a look at Dr. David McClellan and his research at Harvard University, he came up with affiliation theory. And you know, you take a look at the people you hang around with, you probably share a lot of the same beliefs and behaviors, and you probably see that in a lot of areas of life for a lot of people. Now, do people have friends that ha- you know, have thoughts and behaviors and hobbies that are very diverse from their own? Absolutely. But not often. You know, birds of a feather do flock together. So you know, if somebody struggles with alcohol, for an example, you, know, you can motivate yourself and discipline yourself to not have the next drink, or you can immerse yourself in a coffee bar versus the pub. And that environment is going to create a different set of behaviors. So group exercise creates the people and the environment that allow that facilitate the behaviors you most want to have occur. So yes. That and, and that's very powerful. And hopefully people that can help people realize, you know, a way to, to get started on a journey to maybe make, make physical activity or exercise a little more sticky for them. Now we're getting ready to wrap up, and I want to touch on something real quick. Um, we were talking earlier, you mentioned something called flow and, and, and the flow state. What, what do you mean by that? Because I had another guest on recently, uh, John Wolf from On It, and we were talking about flow a little bit. And I've read Stephen Kotler's book, um, Becoming Superman. And I just think this is such a, a killer concept. And it's something that I think, you know, as somebody who's done a number of, not a number, but who's done some extreme sports, I can relate to the flow state. And it's such a cool concept to see it quantified 
what does it mean and how can somebody work towards that? I, I, th- I think, you know, that's a very hard question because yeah, not, a lot, it's a, deep, not it's a, a lot deep. is known about flow. Because you, you can honestly say that the difference between, you know, given talents and skills all being equal, yes, you need all of that. But the difference between average performers and super performers is that super performers are able to get themselves into a state of flow more of the time. And that's really a simplified statement, but it has a lot of truth to it. And, you know, Stephen Kotler, The Rise of Superman. And, you know, I, I, I've also read a book that I would recommend, Stealing Fire. Very, very good read. And obviously, uh, Mahai Chaset Mahai's book titled, very appropriately, Flow. Uh, Mahai Chaset Mahai is probably the foremost authority on flow states. And he studied flow states across not just athletes, but business people and poets, multiple artists. So people from multiple domains who have used flow state or experienced flow states very effectively. And flow states occur with complete and total immersion. When you have a high degree of concentration on the task at hand. You're focusing on the process. You're not necessarily stepping back from it and focusing on what the outcome is going to be like one month, one year from now. And we've all had flow states where, you know, let's say you're writing an article and it's so personally meaningful to you and you're not forcing the words to come out. You're, you're allowing them. So it's almost as if, you know, it's your creativity is not coming from you, but through you. And you, you kind of look up and all of a sudden it's dark out. It's like you thought you were sitting there writing for about 20 minutes. But in reality, you were writing for hours, but you had no sense of self-awareness. You know, you, you didn't know that you were engaging in, in writing because you were so lost in the activity. And it's only after the activity is over where you look back and say, whoa, that was amazing. And you have this like post-activity euphoria associated to that state. And I think, you know, more, more than I could ever do justice to flow states, you know, pick up one of these books, you know, at least read the sample and see if it resonates with you. Because I think I think you'll get a lot out of it. Um, I liked Stealing Fire probably more than Rise of the Superman, although I loved it because I think it applied to a more diversified population. Um, and of course, Flow is probably one of the best books I've ever read on the subject. Yeah, that's going to be one of the next ones I pick up. And, and it's just it's amazing to see that. And it's like if you're doing something you enjoy, if you're doing something that, that truly brings joy to you, you, you don't even realize how, how time, you know, you kind of are, you're in the moment. You're not thinking about what happened. You're not thinking about what's going to happen. You're stuck in the moment. That's kind of how I interpret flow is it allows you to live moment by moment rather than worrying about what you did or worrying about what you may do. It allows you just to be, I mean, is that kind of a good way to, to, to clarify it? Can I chime in on something that yeah. like, really has been bothering me? I need to get this off my chest. Not that I want to use your podcast as an excuse to that, <laughs> but you know, there's, there's all this information around what's the best training program, what's the best diet, and you have people with extreme confirmation biases fighting and arguing. So you got like you know the paleos versus vegans, hmm. and you know it, it gets pretty intense. Like if you left the paleo and a vegan alone in the same room to work it out, the paleo would probably eat the vegan. So <laughs> it, it's it's pretty extreme. And I think whenever you do something without intense enjoyment and a love for it, because there's times when things are really hard and you suffer through it. But even even, um, Dr. Viktor Frankl said that despair 
is not a matter of suffering. It's suffering in the absence of meaning. That's the distinction because suffering in the presence of meaning not only doesn't produce despair, it can actually at some level be very rewarding in and of itself because it's in service of, not in order to. And that's a very subtle um, but powerful distinction. You know, so it's a matter of what works for you. It's not a matter of what does this guru say or you know, what's the right plan to be on? No, what's the plan that you can stick to? What's the plan that resonates with you? That's the best plan. And that's why you know, be open to everything. You know, you go, I, I went to a Jim Rohn seminar, late great Jim Rohn, um, years ago. And I heard him say, you, know, you read one book on nutrition and it says, you better do this if you want to live a long life. And then you pick up in the same bookstore a book right next to it on the shelf that says, hey, you know, I know you picked up that other book a minute ago. If you do what they say to do, you're going to die. And you're like, <laughs> whoa, what do I do? This is so confusing. What do you do? Read both books. And when you're done with those books, read another and then another. And then make your own decisions. Don't get caught up in people who want to be right. You can be right or you can be effective. They're not always the same things. And, you know, one question I always get asked in seminars, and I'm surprised you didn't ask it. I'm actually grateful you didn't ask it, is what's your favorite book? You know, what book do you recommend most? And, you know, people look at me like I'm a little bit insane when I recommend Wicked by Gregory Maguire or I recommend Ham on Rye by Charles Bukowski. You know, they're thinking like, you know, I'll recommend like um, some self-help book that's really popular. And my success gurus are Shakespeare, Bukowski and Baudelaire because they're all basically saying the same thing. And there's a lot of philosophies and not all of them agree. But the one thing I have seen, not with affluent people, but successful people, success is the progressive realization of a worthy goal. So when what you want to do and what you actually do is in line, you're successful. A school teacher that's not making more than 40000 a year their whole lives are massively successful if they wake up in the morning and he or she desperately wants to teach and then goes to work and actually invests themselves completely in teaching. That person is far more successful than a decamillionaire who wishes – he was a musician instead of doing what he's doing. Do you resonate with what I'm saying? There? Oh, I think that's t- I think that's so important. And I'm going to bring this back to the fitness aspect because this comes back to I think one of the reasons why we see people drop out of it is because they try to make themselves something they're not. And I, I've spent num- numerous times pointing out to clients and pointing out to people I've, I've coached, you know, in group fitness classes that you when you look at a celebrity that, that's that's achieved this miraculous change. Well, they have a very substantial financial goal to achieve that change if they're going yeah, for a specific yeah. part in a movie. You know, you're talking upwards of two, you know, I would, you know. I would, and resources I, to restructure every facet of their life around the attainment of that's that. That's exactly it. Private chef, private driver, three or four assistants, people to do everything for them. So all they need to do is spend four, six, eight, 12 weeks to prepare for a role, allowing them to get this body. You know, and that's not, you know, that's not realistic and it's not attainable. And that's why one of the reasons why I'm doing this podcast, Bobby, is I want people to realize that fitness, fitness is having the ability to do what you want to do. Fitness means, mm. you know, you, you, that yep. you, you're achieving, you're working towards a healthier lifestyle. And, and one of the things, and, and I want to close with this, 
you know, kind of a little thing. One of the things that really, really bothers me about our industry, about the fitness and, and, and health club industry, is the fact that we still, we still market based on appearance. Why are we using, you know, 20 something models who are size four with phenomenal bodies to try to appeal to women and men in their 50s and 60s? Well, maybe men in their 50s and 60s. But why are we trying to, to use these models with unattainable bodies to try to appeal to people to say become this image? You know, that's one thing that, that, that really bothers me about, about our industries. We use this appearance, you know, appearance. You have to look better. You have to be skinnier. You have to have abs. BS. You know, we don't have to do that. The only thing you have to do is that if you don't exercise, you're taking years off your life. You know, I, I can't tell you anything. You know, I like your point about I don't like I don't you know, I don't promote any specific type of exercise, but the lack of regular exercise will take years off your life. Everything else is up to you. Do yoga, do Pilates. I don't freaking care. Just do something, even if it's walking to work. I mean, would you? And you? Do you have? How does? How do you have any like feelings about? I mean, what do you try to get people to think about? You know, in terms of framing exercise and framing fitness, is it for health or is it for appearance or what do you think really matters to most people? Well, I, I think it. It's a very individual thing, but people get confused and, and not, I'm not just talking about clients. I'm, I'm calling out fitness professionals. Trainers. Oh, totally. Absolutely. They, Absolutely. They're confused between goals and outcomes. We're such a goal oriented society. Now we, we could probably do a two part series <laughs> on goals and the conflicting research and evidence on the efficacy of goal setting. That makes a lot of people really angry. Um, especially where they are within phases of change. But a goal is not an outcome. A goal is a means. It's not the end you're looking for. And if you lose sight of that end, that value, that thing, you're going to, you're going to struggle quite a bit. Um, you know, and, and when I said that Bukowski and Baudelaire, um, and Shakespeare were, you know, they, they were my success coaches. I meant it, you know, Shakespeare said, um, you know, let me not to the marriage of true minds and impediments. You know, love is not that which alters when the alteration finds or bends with the remover to be removed. Oh, no, it is an ever fixed mark that looks upon tempest and is not shaken. So if you identify what it is that you love and how do I utilize, as you said, exercise as a means of being able to live that reality and pursue that thing more effectively and tenaciously, your chances of sticking with something are much, much greater. Um, and it's a matter of, if you can put the benefits of exercise on cognition and the brain into a pill, it would be the hottest selling pharmaceutical on the market today. So the, the, the difference between who you are and who you're capable of being with exercise is a far, far divide. So I, I want everybody to exercise and not just exercise because, you know, just being active for an hour a day does not um, offset the consequences of being inactive for most of the day. So to just basically building a life around movement is critical, but find out what it is you love and then structure an exercise program around what serves that thing. And you hit the nail on the head. It doesn't matter, you know, what you do. You'll do what you love and what you enjoy. You'll find reasons to do it. Instead of making excuses not to go to the gym, you'll make excuses 
just to do that? How many people make excuses you know, to, to get out of going to a dinner with someone they're attracted to or get out of going away on a great vacation that they've been looking forward to? Well, that's because it's fun and it doesn't require work. Are you kidding me? Planning a, a proper vacation takes time, energy, and money. It's so exhausting. You get back from vacation. You need a vacation to recover <laughs> from your vacation. But why do people do it? Because there's a meaning there. There's a value that is being upheld. And there are people who approach their work the same way people approach vacations. You know, they, they don't work because they have to. They get to. They don't spend 12 hours a day immersed in it for any other reason than they love what they do. So you find that it, you know, I, I think Bukowski said, you know, find what you love and let it kill you, <laughs> you know, let it cling onto your back and drag you down into nothingness, devour your remains. Everything kills you fast or slow, best to be killed by a lover. Now, what he was saying is not find a destructive habit and then like indulge in that until you die. Although it seemed like he was living his life that way. But I think <laughs> what he meant is just find something that, that makes it all worth it all and live in service of that. And you don't have to force yourself to engage in certain characteristics and attributes. They will automatically emerge. Like parenting, for example. You know, parents probably don't always feel like you could relate to this, don't always feel like, you know, waking up five times a night, but most do because of the meaning that child represents. No, that's, I mean, that's a great analogy and a great way to wrap it up. Well, with that, Bobby, how can people, do you have a website? Do you have, how can people kind of follow along with you? Or do you, you know, what's one way if people want to get a little more information and how can they stay in contact with you and, and get more kind of more Bobby Capuccio isms? Well, um, I have Robert Capuccio, C-A-P-P-U-C-C-I-O.com. That's my website. And on that website, it links you to uh, Bobby Capuccio University. <laughs> kind of a cheesy name, but those are, you know, some of my products and some of the tools um, that I offer. There's, you know, f uh, free downloads um, on the website. There'll be a lot more coming in the future. Um, you know, I'm, I'm getting better at social media, so you can find me on Facebook, my fan page, Bobby Capuccio at the Robert Capuccio. Uh, you can find me on Instagram. I'm on LinkedIn. So yeah, I'm, okay. I'm not all too hard to find. And I'll, and I'll put those in the show notes for people interested in, in kind of being able to follow along with Bobby. Cause and I mean, I really appreciate your time, man. And, and for people that don't know, I mean, do you remember, do you remember when we first met? I'll, I'll talk about this in the intro, but way, way back at TSI. Yeah, no, it was back in uh, 2002 when you taught, yep. you, you taught me the workshop to learn how to teach uh, the NASM uh, certification. So uh, we go, we go back a few years and man, I just want to say, Bob, it's been uh Robert, what do you prefer Bobby or Robert? I, I, I've been calling you Bobby. And, and you know, if I, if I do, I apologize, but, uh, you know, you... I personally don't, I personally don't care. I mean, you know, I, I call myself Robert, but you know, I come from Brooklyn, but you know, I have like my family is, is a lot of them are from Australia and something about Brooklynites and Aussies is they're incapable of saying anything <laughs> that doesn't end in a vowel. Yeah. So every time I try to call myself Robert, they're like, Robbie, Robberino, Bobberino, Bobby. So yeah. not, just call me Bobby. I just yeah. give up. Well, it's, it's been, it's been just so much fun, man. I mean, I know, you know, we haven't worked together closely throughout our careers, but I really, I just want to say, I've, I've enjoyed your friendship. I've enjoyed your, you know, your professionalism. And it's really just been, it's been so much fun working with you, man. Same so, here. I've always got time for you, Pete. I yeah, think well, you're, you're brilliant. I, 
And I am going to have you back again because I do want to, because I love that concept of goals. And so we'll set up a time and I'll have you back and, and we can talk about goals and, and blow some of the paradigm out of the water. Cause I agree with you. I think we, we place so much emphasis on goals that, that it can be, it, it's, it's, you know, we put energy in the wrong direction rather than focus on the process. We get all wound up on where it should lead. And, and I think that's, there's probably a better way to do that. So we'll definitely do that at another time. Wow. Well, I told you that was going to be a long one. As you can tell, Bobby's really passionate about his favorite subject, which is how do we, how do we make changes in our life? And yes, I will be having a follow-up conversation with him about goals because I think sometimes that we get so caught up about what we want to be that we forget about who we are in the here and now. You know, we, we always have this talk, especially in fitness, of, I want to be thinner, I want to be fitter, I want to be stronger, I want to be, I want to be, I want to be, I want to be. Well, how about who you are right now? And sometimes that's the role that a coach plays. Sometimes a coach can help you look at, look at what you're doing, can help you look at your life and say, wow, I am doing a good job. I am where I want to be. I have to take a look at what I've accomplished, and, and dang it, I've done a lot. Now, I'm not just talking about me. I'm just talking about in general. You know, a coach can really help you transcend where you are. If you feel that you've been kind of stuck in the mud or you feel that you've been kind of going through the motions and, and maybe you got passed over that promotion at work or maybe you haven't been able to, to get past that, that goal, whatever it might be, you know, it might be worth looking at hiring a coach. You know, maybe Bobby might be the right guy for you. His contact information is in the show notes down below. If not Bobby, maybe somebody else. You know, look around. Is there somebody out there in your field? Is there somebody out there? in fitness or, or anything, if you, if you want something hard enough and are willing to work for it, you know, a coach can help put in place the action steps it's going to take to do that, you know, and that's the role that a coach can play. And you've seen a lot of what, what you're starting to see in the fitness industry. The, the, those of us who have been doing this for, you know, I've known Bobby now going back 15 years. So he and I have both been personal trainers, probably, you know, I'm getting ready to hit 20 years in the industry. And I know Bobby was doing it a little bit before I got into it. So you're seeing some of us who've had a career in helping people make these transformative changes in the gym, but now we're stepping outside and we're saying, how else can we help people in other facets of life? Because let's face it, change is change. The first step to change is identifying that you do want to change in the first place. Identifying that, yes, something needs to happen. And then the second thing is, okay, what, what do you want to take place? You know, the tra- you, know the, you have the trans-theoretical model of change. You know, you have pre-contemplation. That's when you're not even thinking about change. You know, contemplation is when you first start thinking about it. You know, actions when you put things into play. Maintenance is once you, you know, once you've taken to make those changes, you have to stay on track. There are five specific steps for change. And a coach can help you identify what you need to do to make those changes possible in your life. Now, if it's just a fitness goal, a good trainer, you know, I've been interviewing trainers lately. On my podcast, if you want to hear stories about how personal trainers make change or the roles that personal trainers play, you can go back and listen to Robert Linkle. You can listen to Courtney Thomas. You can listen to Gunnar Peterson or Eric Fleischman. You know, I've talked with a number of trainers, people who have firsthand knowledge of how to make physical transformation. With Bobby today, I was trying to get into a little bit deeper dive. I was trying to go into a little bit more about the metaphysical transformation. Because let's face it, you know, physical being is just our, our outside of what we look like. What truly matters is what we're doing on the inside, how we feel on the inside, how you feel about yourself. 
you know, some of that transcends coaching. You might need to go see someone with a little more professional experience, like a therapist, but you know, that's, that's how that side of the scope of this podcast, obviously. But I want you to think about, are you happy with where you are and do you need to make changes or what type of changes do you need to make? Do you need somebody in your corner who's going to ask the right questions? Because as Bobby said, a coach isn't just about, a coach can't make you do anything you don't already want to do. But a coach is going to ask you the right questions to help you uncover the true power that lies within yourself. So that that's where you are. If, you, if you're kind of in, feel like you're on that treadmill, you're not really getting anywhere. If you feel like you're kind of stuck in the mud, maybe you need a coach to sit down with you and ask you some questions. And once the coach asks you the questions, the coach can help you develop an action plan that you implement yourself. And that's the thing. A coach can't do anything for you. Here's his thing. Bill Belichick doesn't do a dang thing on the football field. You know, when Phil Jackson was helping Jordan or helping Kobe win all those championships, he didn't step foot on the court. But what each of those coaches did was they set up the environment where their athletes were successful. And that's what a good coach does. A good coach helps you set up the environment where you can be successful. So if you have any, if you have any information or want more information about Bobby Capuccio, his information is in the show notes. You heard him talk about his website. You can also follow him on social media. And if you've been appreciating All About Fitness, if you can do me a favor and take a moment to give us a rating, whatever format you listen to us on, whether it's iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or YouTube, if you could do me a favor and give us a good rating. And just so you know, now on my, on my quick fit tips, I'm starting to answer fitness questions. So if you have any specific fitness questions, I'm not going to answer medical, I'm not going to answer relationship questions. Those are outside of my scope of practice. But if you have any fitness questions that you'd like answered, please feel free to send them to me at Pete at PeteMcCallFitness.com. Again, that's Pete at PeteMcCallFitness.com. Please check back on my blog at PeteMcCallFitness.com. And if you want to follow me on the Twitter, my Twitter handle is Pete, P-E-T-E-M-C underscore fitness. That's Twitter is Pete, M-C underscore fitness. Now, I tend to tweet out a lot of my blogs. And if you want to follow me on Instagram, on Instagram, I put up fitness tips. I put up exercise how-tos. And I try to put up just a lot of informative stuff to help you have a better life through exercise. My Instagram handle is Pete McCall underscore fitness. That's P-E-T-E McCall underscore fitness for Instagram. Thanks for tuning in. Stay healthy and please check back for future episodes of All About Fitness. Fitness.